For those who don't know me, my name's Jacob, and up until about a year ago, my wife, Sarah, and I were members here at City Light Balmain, um, and it's really just great to be back with you. Um, a few things have changed, a lot of new faces, uh, Cam's the worship pastor now, um, so everything's, everything's um, looking up for City Light Balmain. Um, uh, about a year ago, we, we headed off with about 20 other members from Balmain to launch a campus over in Burwood. And, um, and we really missed you guys in the time we've been away. Um, we've seen God work in a lot of amazing ways as he's built a real genuine community of people who love one another deeply, who are willing to do anything to see the people of Burwood encounter the gospel. Um, and we've seen, we've seen people come and explore in the faith this year. We've seen people grow in their love of Jesus, which has been a huge, huge blessing for us over there. Um, but I think, as many of you guys know and have heard little updates, the last few months I've been really, really tough over at Burwood. Um, I stepped down off the staff team a couple of months ago amid some, um, some uh, stuff we're working through as a leadership. And uh, just before Christmas, Cedric, the other pastor, stood down as well. So for the people of Burwood, this has been a really, really tough time. And I just want to encourage you guys to keep Burwood in your prayers. Um, we're, we're still meeting together over at Burwood. So this morning we, we, we met at 10 a.m. We've got about 40 adults and 10 kids over there who are trying to really figure out what church is going to look like going forward. So please keep praying for what's happening in Burwood. Um, uh, please pray for Gav and Jez and the other elders, Rob, Chris and Cam, as they are, are working through what to do next as well. And um, we'd love you to keep praying for Sarah and I as well. But it is really good to be here with you um, and to, to be looking at this psalm, which the one that Johnny just read, that I found so, so helpful this week in thinking about the year ahead. Um, over the next four weeks here at church, we're going to be looking at four different psalms under the kind of banner, A Reason to Sing. So we're looking at how it is that the character of God, what he reveals of himself, uh, means that we have got great reason to joyfully pour out praise for who God is. Um, and I think this one in particular, like I just said, is timely for the start of a year. Um, I'm not sure what your 2019 was like. I'm sure everyone's had a bunch of different experiences over the last year. For some of you, it may have been real, a really hard one as you've gone through maybe illness or, or mental illness or you've uh, been grieving some loss or had some hope for the year that just never came to fruition. Maybe you've just had a great year um, and just went just way better than you could have ever imagined and you're just so, so sad it's over. Um, and going into the new year, I don't know how you're feeling about it. I don't know if maybe you're feeling any uh, acute uncertainties or worries about the year ahead. I think um, for me, it's, it feels quite acute We're, with church, a bit up in the air. Um, with uh, I'm still trying to work out what to do for work this year. And we're also expecting a baby in a couple of months, which is hugely exciting. But also people say that that can be hard. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, still very much unknown. Um, so maybe you've got some unknowns about the year ahead. Um, things that you're, you're hoping are going to happen, but you're just not sure if they will. Maybe you don't know what your living situation is going to be or your work situation or your relationship status is going to be this year, and, and it's quite unknown. But even if you're someone who the year ahead looks quite straightforward, the one thing we've all got in common is that none of us really know what's going to happen this year. Um, hopefully there's going to be some uh, joyful surprises along the way for each of us, but the hard reality is that the hardest times in life when it comes to tragedy and, and sickness uh, and, and grief, they're often things that we're not really expecting. And so I don't know who that's going to be for, for this year that's going to have maybe a really, really horrible year. And so with that on the cards, this, this thing that brings us together, the fact that we don't know what's going to be 
in store for us in the year ahead? How is it that we can approach the year joyfully? How can we move into this year with a a deep-rooted sense of hope and joyful conviction that we're well up in song even in the midst of the unknown? That's what I want to be kind of unpacking as we work through this psalm. Um, I've found looking at this psalm this week to be so, so helpful in kind of switching my frame of mind to what I would call a restful confidence. Not a, not a kind of proud confidence, it's just this attitude of we can do anything or a, a blind optimism to say everything's going to be okay, but a restful confidence that means that we can be at peace and know that everything is under control even when it's not under our control. I think this psalm, is, you know, it's a very popular psalm um, for good reason, that it's kind of like finding you know, a spring in a desert. We live in a, in a culture that just from every side is telling us to worry. From every side is telling us things are not okay. And this psalm just says it is okay. And so my hope is that as we kind of work our way through, we're not going to do anything particularly complicated today. We're just going to pull apart that psalm line by line, sit under it, meditate on it. And, and, and hopefully as we do that, we'll actually feel a sense of restful confidence within us as we think about the year ahead. So let's, um, let's pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can be together in this day. And we know that there are many of our church family who aren't here with us. And we just pray that you'd be with them as they're on holidays and, or sick or working or whatever they're doing. But we pray that for, for those of us in this room today, that you would use this time to be with you. That as we hear these words in this psalm, that we would, be, we would actually sense that as you speaking to us. That we would agree with this psalm uh, in a heart of hearts, that we would be reminded of your goodness, your mercy, your control, and your care, and that would alleviate any concerns or worries that we might be feeling as we've come in today, that that might uh, put us on a trajectory towards trust and hope in you into this year ahead. We pray you'd be speaking to us now. Amen. So we're going to be moving kind of through kind of three chunks of the psalm. It's not a very long psalm, so we'll be able to get through all of it. We're looking um, at how it is we can be confident because we're under the care of a good shepherd. We're going to be looking at how it is we can be confident because God is with us and how it is that we can be confident because the future is sure. But let's jump straight into it. We've got it up on the screen. Great, it worked. It wasn't working before. So we're looking at um, the very first line. David starts the psalm by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, for those who don't know, the author of this psalm, David, was the second king of Israel, but before he was a king, he was just a shepherd. Um, he spent the first whole chunk of his life out in fields looking after sheep. He had sheep entrusted to him that it was his responsibility to protect, to provide for, and to care for. And so in calling God his shepherd, as much as anything, he's relating his experience to the experience of a sheep. It's a position of weakness. It's a position of need. It's a position of being out of control. It's being in need of a protector and a provider. And I don't think this is a posture that I think maybe a lot of us aren't that comfortable taking too often. I think we think that being in control and having it sorted is is the prerequisite for being restful, for being non-anxious. But Dave says the opposite. He says, we need to take the posture of sheep and acknowledge that God is our caregiver. We're in the care of another, and it's in the care of another that we can truly rest. Now, over the last few months of Sarah being pregnant, I think I've found myself a few times when I've had particularly hard days being quite jealous of our baby. Um, 
It has got it made right now. It's, it's in the womb. It is protected. It is enclosed. Anything that's kind of chaotic going out, it doesn't know about the bushfires. It doesn't know about anything going on in our life. It is just safe and enclosed and protected. And, um, and our hope is that when the baby comes into the world, that although for a, quite a long while it'll be helpless, it'll be weak, that although it's those things, it'll be cared for. Our, our hope is that we'll be able to be parents that can provide and keep it safe and keep it loved, that even though it is helpless, it will be safe. David is taking on this position of being helpless, but acknowledging with a good shepherd he is safe. And so he says the next line, he says, I shall not want. He knows that his shepherd is a good provider who gives him what he needs. I don't think he's getting into saying that God gives him everything he wants all the time. Um, when we first found out we were pregnant, I thought we had a heap of time to work out how to be parents. For like nine months, I'll read like three books on parenting at least. Two months to go now, haven't read any, don't know anything about parenting. But I do know a little bit, and it's because I've got nieces and nephews. And um, one thing I do know is that you shouldn't give kids what they want all the time. Um, we, when we, our nieces and nephews come over, they'll go straight into the knife drawer, get the poison out of the cupboard. We've got cactuses, because I love cactuses, but they'll go and try to hug them, and when you try to pull them away from the cactus, they cry because they really want to hug the cactus. Um, but being a good parent isn't to give them what they want, it's to give them what they need. And as they get older, that'll mean, um, you know, when they want all the screen time in the world, they can't have it. When they want hard drugs, they can't have it. Um, the, being a provider, though, means knowing what they really do need and doing what you can to give it to them, which I think is the posture that God has towards us of actually giving us what, what we need. In the same way that I don't want my child to be left wanting when it comes to the essentials like safety or family or food. That's the posture of God towards us. And you see this in the next line where where David uses rich symbolism to describe what is happening for the sheep. He says, well, for him, he says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. It's this just relaxing scene, something you'd hear on like a mindfulness app, just like close your eyes picture the stream, picture the grass. It's this a picture of abundance. It's the ideal situation for a sheep where it can just lie down. It's eaten so much that it doesn't have to eat anymore. It just lies down in the green pastures. We've just spent Christmas out in, in the country and, and uh, Sarah's family's neighbor is a sheep farmer. And you look out at the sheep and they're at the moment with the drought, they're just standing in this desolate paddock where there's nothing green, there is no water. They're standing in the dead grass and dirt. But God is a God who takes us to a place of abundance, who provides abundantly for his people. And this is obviously symbolic, so we need to work out what what is this provision that he makes? What does it look like for God to provide abundantly? And I think we see it in the next couple of lines. David says, he restores my soul. God is a God who restores the soul. There are times in the Bible where it does talk about God being a God who provides materially for his people. Uh, and, and there are times when that happens, but it's certainly not the case that for every Christian throughout time they've been provided well materially. Um, more often than not, when the Bible is talking about blessing, just time and time again, it is talking about blessing and provision and abundance that happens internally. That God is a God who doesn't just look at, at circumstances, but He looks at the heart. He doesn't just look at what is outward and around us, but looks at what is inside of us. God is a God who heals what is inwardly broken, who breathes life into what is inwardly dead, who strengthens what is inwardly weak, and who sanctifies what is inwardly sinful. 
And that makes sense because I think normally the problems that we feel most acutely are the external ones and the things around us. But when we stop and reflect, the biggest problems that we face are inward. The biggest problem with your life is you. We have hearts that are broken. We've got desires that are misplaced. We are selfish. We are forgetful. We, we are broken. Our souls seem prone to go out of step with what God wants for us. But God is a God who restores the soul. This is where God works. And, and you've probably experienced times when you felt like when it is well with your soul, when you feel internally whole and complete and just in harmony with God and what he's doing in your life and his will for your life, your circumstances seem to matter a lot less. You can kind of weather them a little bit better. I wonder if some of you are coming into this year feeling like you're in need of having your souls restored. Maybe you've come from a year where you've been neglecting your relationship with God, neglecting your soul altogether, only thinking about how much money you're making or what you're doing or where you're living or whether you're buying that house, and your soul's been neglected. Maybe you've been living with a, some secret sin and you've resolved that this is the year that you're going to finally do something about it. I want you to know God is a God who delights to restore souls. That is what he wants to do for us. That is what it looks like for him to be a good, providing caregiver. He wants to make things right inside you. God's shepherding work is then clarified again in the next line where he says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The path that the shepherd God leads us is a path of righteousness. God has a trajectory and a purpose for your life. And that purpose is to go down a road that leads you to become more like Jesus, to become more holy, more righteous, more, more mature, more complete. And God is doing this for his name's sake because when you are the person that God made you to be, reflecting what he's like to the world, he's glorified. He's shown to be the good God that he is. So God cares about your life. And he cares about the, the path your life is on. Your decisions, God is not ambivalent towards them. He doesn't, he's not indifferent towards them. He cares. He cares about what you do during the week. He cares about the conversations you have, how you spend your free time. God cares about your life. And he's orchestrating your life in such a way that you're on a path to righteousness. He's leading you as a shepherd leads his sheep. God is our shepherd. That is a truth that we can rest in. We're in his care. We can have confidence in that. And I think this all together, when you look at these, these lines, it, it runs in contrast to the narrative we normally tell ourselves, which is that the main person responsible for looking after you is you. That's not what this is saying. God has taken responsibility for us. To walk into the dark unknown with only yourself to look to, with only yourself to care for yourself, that is a scary thought. But God is saying he's our shepherd. I wonder how it would shape you to relate to God as your carer. Someone who is there to love and protect and nourish you this year. We're under the care of a good shepherd. That's the first reason we can be confident. We're going to move to the second part of the psalm now. which is We can be confident because God is with us. The next line of the psalm, I think, really shifts the imagery. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is a major shift, isn't it, from the green pastures and the still waters of verse 1. 
Um, I don't know what imagery comes to your mind when you think of something that you would describe as the valley of the shadow of death, but it's not something you name a luxury resort. Um, I was listening the other day as we were driving back from Christmas to a podcast on the ABC Conversations where they were interviewing, I can't remember his name, but he was the Australian anaesthetist doctor who was involved in rescuing the, the boys from the Thai cave last year. And he was a professional cave diver who was also an anaesthetist, so he could get in there and he described the three-kilometer journey through the cave system, where, which was still flooding at the time, so it's pitch black. It's a difficult cave in that there was kind of nooks and crannies and ups and downs, and it was constantly being filled with this murky, muddy brown water that meant that even with a light on underwater, as you're swimming for you know, hundreds of meters at a time, you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. And he described it as, he said that, you know, once they found the boys, really slowly, they ended up getting a cord so you could kind of follow your way along. And he said that if you let go of that cord, um, because it was so dark, your, your odds of finding it was so slim that you'd probably just swim around, never find the surface again. It was, I, my heart was racing hearing this. Like, to have to go through something, that would be my worst, worst nightmare. What this psalm's getting at is that there are going to be times when life is going to feel like we are passing through something just absolutely horrific. Um, something that we just seem out of control, where it is hopeless, where it is dark, where it is terrifying. And that doesn't feel like a comfort to kind of see that thrown in there, but I think it is because it means that the confidence that David is talking about isn't one that's detached from the hardness of life. It's not one that kind of suppresses or ignores the hard things. It's not a glib optimism, but it's, it's... it's a confidence that comes even in the midst of things like death. David acknowledges that there is a genuine hardship and suffering in this life. And there might be people in this room who right now you feel like that's the season you're in. So look at what David says. He says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The ultimate comfort for David in this psalm is the line, you are with me. Even in the suffering, even through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with his people. We are never truly alone. David knows that when he's with his sheep, um, they're safe. If he's not with them, they're not safe. He knows that with his rod and his staff, he could fight off bears and wolves as, as his sheep were attacked. And he's saying that he has the same comfort knowing that God is with him at all times. Knowing that you're not alone is an antidote to fear. I heard another podcast recently, I don't even know where I heard this one, but they were talking about how loneliness is linked to having poorer sleep. That if you're, if you're, if you're someone who would just describe yourself as having um, some severe loneliness, that you don't sleep as well. They, people that are lonely um, wake up more frequently in the night, they go to sleep easier. And they were saying that that's, because, that's the reason for that is because of most of the time being alone meant you're in danger. Before you had like a lock on your apartment, if you were you know, by yourself out in a field, and you were sleeping, you had, if there was no one with you, you had to have sleep with one eye open to be able to detect predators and, and, and problems. Our bodies are trained not to sleep easy when we don't feel like we've got support and community and people around us. There is an extent to which true rest can't come when you're alone. When you're alone, you, you don't get the luxury of rest. But the, the truth that this psalm is, is holding out is the fact that for Christians, we're never alone. God is with us. And I wonder how this idea of God being with you sits with you. Is that something that you can kind of relate to? 
Um, if you slow down and think about it, God being with us is a remarkable truth. There is this sense, obviously, that God is with us all the time in the sense that God is in us and the sense that God is everywhere. But how much do you actually sense the fact that God is with you? I think for me, this is where I, where I, um, where I, where I fall down. Like how much, how much of when you describe what it means for you to, be a, to have faith or be a Christian, is, is that a relational thing of being with God? Are you more inclined to measure your relationship with God by the things that you do for God, maybe? Like even if you just take coming here today, is, this, is being here today for you an act of coming just to do something for God or for some other reason? Or is this just one of the times in the week that you can be just tangibly aware that you are with God? and to just engage with him relationally. One of the practices I'm at the moment trying to build into my quiet times, which I've found really hard, and I know some of the interns here are trying to do this as well, is to just kind of sandwich my time with God with just a couple of minutes of just silence, just to sit and not try not to think about anything or, or just get straight into reading something, just to acknowledge the fact that God is with me. I found it really tough because I think I often neglect that part of, of my, my life as a Christian remind ourselves that God is with us, even at our hardest times. We need to know that. That's the second reason we can be confident from this psalm. The third is that we can be confident because the future is sure. I think um, as a culture in our particular time in, um, in history, and just, I guess, even maybe just living in the inner west of Sydney, we don't feel like we have a good view of the, of the future. I think that's certainly the case when you look at my Facebook news feed. There is everything saying things are getting worse. Um, and some things are. Climate change is getting worse. And, and that's really like there at the moment, isn't it, with the bushfires and with, with the drought. Um, and it can lead to taking on a really hopeless outlook for the future. When you feel like there's not much to look forward to, things are only going to get worse. Um, but when something comes along that does give you reason to hope, it actually really changes your kind of outlook. And you can start to feel excited about the future. I got sent an article actually by Josh this week um, after we watched Ad Astra, which was um, a, a bunch of experts in different areas describing what they thought the future was going to look like. And the first thing on it was a moon base by 2024. And that was, like, that was the thing that got me really excited. But as I read through it, it was talking about how um, you don't hear it as much, but poverty around the world is on track to being eradicated. Like that is massive. Um, and it's, you know... It's just tangible improvement on poverty around the world from the, through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. It's huge. Um, medical development in, in, in mapping the human genome is just making it so much easier to cure diseases that they thought were previously uncurable. And when you, I, by the time I read that article, I was like, oh, I'm so glad having a kid, like bringing someone to the world, instead of the kind of normal narrative that things are getting worse. But even then, that article, a lot of that stuff probably won't happen. It's not a sure thing. What David's pointing to here is the future in such a way that even in the midst of things being hard now, we can hope for the future. He says, you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you appoint, anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is probably some of the kind of weirdest language of the, the psalm, but I think it's just basically trying to paint a picture of God providing an abundant feast, even at the moment, though he's surrounded by his enemies. Even though he's in the midst of problems, there's still opposition around him. God is setting the table. He's getting a feast ready. He's getting something to look forward to. You know, when you just, when you just know that like a great like, banquet or a wedding, something, you've just got something to look forward to. He's saying, I'm getting it ready. 
There is a banquet getting prepared. And so then David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Can you say this about your life with a degree of um, being earnest about it? Do you say this about your life? Is the language you use to describe your future anywhere akin to goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life? Or is it life's only going to get harder till I die? Because like, that's, that's, that's my narrative that I kind of say a lot more. Um, I wonder what it would change for me if that was the kind of way I was describing life. Um, you'd be, I'd be more of a positive person. You'd probably want to spend time with me. Um, <laughs> David is confident that God will be good to him and continue to be good to him. He's confident that God will continue to show him mercy. That is, that God will continue to treat him better than he deserves. The basis for David's confidence seems to be that he's seeing God work in the past, that God has taken him from being a shepherd to making him the king, and God has forgiven him for his failings, which were many, uh, that God has opened up a relationship with him. And so David sees the good things God has done and the ways that he's been protected, and he says, look, if God has been good to me already, surely goodness and mercy will keep following me all the days of my life. That's the track record he looks back to. Our track record is the gospel. We've been shown a great mercy. We've been shown a great goodness. The heart of Christianity, the heart of becoming, if you're here investigating Christianity, what it is about is accepting the fact that God has lavished goodness upon you, that he has shown you love that you can't even imagine because you, even though you were sinful, even though you turned your back on him, even though you lived life for yourself, he made the decision to come into this world as a, as a human, to be like us, to relate to our problems, to die in our place, when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, the sin that we had that was keeping us from relationship with God was put on him so there was nothing between us now. That we could be adopted into God's family as children, that we could be welcomed into his kingdom as, as citizens, awaiting an, a, a, an amazing a, eternal kingdom with him. That we've been shown goodness. And that's already happened, and we can point to that in the past and say that is why we're confident. And when we reflect on that and reflect on the fact that we've been shown goodness and mercy, that should give us a degree of confidence about what is yet to come, that God will continue to show us goodness and mercy. With whatever happens, we can be confident in the future. We'll continue to live out the reality that we are not condemned, we are not judged, but we are loved. Which leads David to the last line of his psalm where he says, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David's ultimate hope, even writing thousands of years before Jesus, is an eternal one. Now for us, right now our hope is hope. At the heart of it, we are waiting on something that is not yet realized. We are already the recipients of goodness and mercy. We are already people who can experience what it is to have our souls restored, to be led in paths of righteousness, to know our good shepherd, God. But at the same time as that, we still walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Our lives, a big part of it, is still sorrow and suffering and uncertainty. We live in the tension. And there are times when that that balance is going to tip one way or the other and it'll tip so hard Sometimes on the suffering side, there'll only be this glimmer of goodness left. 
But wherever you're at at that at the moment, we look forward to a day when everything will be made right. When there will be forever nothing between us and God. Where it will just be the, it'll be the, the green pastures and still water all day, every day. We can look forward to that. We know it's coming. It's a sure hope because Jesus rose from the dead. And that transforms then how we see things now. I think Tim Keller summarizes it well when he says um, this. He says, While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys or seeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. That's the case, isn't it? There, there isn't much our culture has to offer. Like, you know, it's just interesting that the contrast, even again on Facebook and Instagram, of the, the outrage and the dismay about the world going down the toilet, Australia's going to burn, and yet all there, all there is to do is have a New Year's party. That's, it's this weird contrast. It's as much fun now, there's much pleasure now, and because and, everything's in the air worse. Whereas Christianity, knowing this truth means you can sit in the sadness. You can look at the hard things in life head on and still have joy because you're hoping that things are going to get better. And not just some vague hope, but you have a certain hope, a confident hope. Now, if you put these things together, this idea that God is a good caregiver, that God is with us and the future is sure, that's going to change everything. Um, and obviously the reality is that, that holding on to these truths and being shaped by them is so much harder than just saying them. Um, we need to meditate on them. We need to sing them. When we, when we worship here in song, as we've been doing, one of the things we're doing is we're confronting the inner anxieties and concerns and doubts that we've got, that every single one of us has. We've all come here with doubts and things we're not so sure on. We're confronting that with truth. We surround ourselves all week with reasons to despair, reasons to cry, and we need to remind ourselves we've got a reason to sing. And we need to do that for our sake, because we want to, like, I want this year to be the most joyful year I've ever had. I'm a bit ambitious, um, but that's what I want. I don't want to be someone who's kind of marked with pessimism and just kind of sadness and, and forgetting all of the good that God is and God has done. So we need to remind ourselves of that. So we need it for us, but we also need it for our world. Um, because you can't really offer something you don't have. We, we live in a joy-starved world. We live in a meaning-starved world, a hope-starved world. We don't live in a world that in any way, shape, or form feels like the playing out of the psalm that we've just read. And what we have to offer the world as a church is something that they're not going to get anywhere else. This like, a genuine rest, a genuine joy. And they need it. People walking up and down Darling Street all through Sydney, they need it. Um, and I've just been encouraged this year, we want, to be, we want to be a church that can go and meet that need. Not just with more negativity. When I was speaking to my uncle over Christmas, um, who lives out in the country, and he's retired so he can do this. But he's resolved to go to, he's got a map, and he's got, put every farmer, because he's like six hours west, every farmer within, I think, a 100-kilometer radius, he's going to drive down every single driveway, go up to them, and just try to tell them about Jesus. Because there's a lot of reasons for those farmers to despair. There's a lot of reasons for them just to be depressed and miserable about what they're seeing. And he's resolved to get out there and share with them the gospel. Um, and it's not just farmers out there. It's people in Sydney. 
Sydney is just an anxious mess at the moment. So what would it change if we really believed this? If we were marked by a deep, restful confidence in who God is and went into our workplaces and our lives ready to share that with people? We need to meditate on these things. So we're going to do now, um, we're going to be singing in response. I think we're going to sing It Is Well and what was the other one? The Goodness of God. So very fitting songs to, to reflect on this together as a church. But before we do that, um, I've got like a thing on the screen. We're going to take a minute just to reflect. I'm going to lead us in a prayer right now. I don't know if that, did it come up the other slide? There's meant to be a thing on the top that said, um, what would it, no, I don't even know what my question was. How would it change your thoughts or actions to believe these three things. So that's something if you want to be reflecting, you can pray in this time. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. There'll be a few minutes to reflect, and then John will let us know what's happening before we sing our last songs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can be together as your church, that we can sit under this psalm, that we can uh, push back against the narratives we tell ourselves that uh, we are alone. No one cares for us. It is up to us to sort our lives out. It is up to us to make sure we're okay. Um, No one cares. We're forgotten. We're forsaken. We want to push back on that with this psalm. We want to know truly that you're our shepherd, that you lead us to places that are good, that you've done an amazing work on our souls, that you'll continue to do that, that you want us to be people of joy. Lord, help us know you're with us. And for those of us with personalities that make that harder to sense and who are more about just doing, um, we pray that you would help us sense your presence to invest in relationship and being with you, not just doing things for you. We pray for our worries about the future. We pray that we would be able to say that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and not just in some way that ignores the hard things, but in a way that knows that even in the midst of suffering, that you are still good, that you are still merciful, and that one day we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we pray that you would continue to transform us as a church, to be a church that is a light to this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, you can take a minute to, to pray, to reflect, and then John will let us know what's happening next.